We're going to turn to the Bible now. If you've got uh, your Bibles with you or um, on your device, or the, the readings will be on the screen as well. We've started a series in Hebrews um, over the past few weeks, and uh, we've been looking through chapter one, and I want to read it yet again. It's so good. We're going to read it again. Uh, but I want to just focus um, a little uh, on one, just one verse um, of verse nine. And think about what Jesus loves and what Jesus hates. So from Hebrews chapter 1, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And in speaking of the angels, he says he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. The scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And he also says in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Wow, it's great stuff. Hebrews reads to me like a sermon. If you read it through, it just sounds like a message that's being preached. The author is unknown. The address is unknown, probably for safety reasons. There was persecution breaking out, not just from Rome, but from Jerusalem as well. The believers to which this is addressed are battered and tired and weary. And maybe some were asking the question, is it worth it? Weren't we better off before? Why don't we go back to the old ways? It was safer then. And the writer is straight in. Yes, it's worth it. Yes, he is worth it. Keep your eyes on Jesus. 
Don't look back. Look up. And it opens with that most wonderful, one of the most wonderful description of Jesus in the Bible in verses 1 to 3. And he repeats it throughout his message because he knows that the way to really strengthen persecuted believers is not to say, we're going to pray that you won't be persecuted. It's to say, look at Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And last week, Edward uh, focused on Jesus' superiority to the angels. And we're told here that the angels worship Jesus. The angels are to be Jesus' PAs, personal assistants. They're created beings, messengers, guardians, protectors, warriors. There are angel armies operating in that spiritual realm and sometimes appearing in our physical earthly realm as well. But there is also a thing that just is under that that I've picked out this week is that in his emphasis that Jesus is far superior to the angels, he is far superior than any demon and any work of the enemy. For Satan or the devil, Greek and Hebrew names, is an angel who has fallen, rebelled against God. Jesus is far superior. He is the Son, God the Son. He is God in the flesh. And that text contains one of the clearest declarations of Jesus' divinity because it says in verse 8, about the Son, He, God the Father, says, Your throne, O God, will last forever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And if you know your Bibles or if you know how to look at the bottom of your Bibles and read the footnotes, you'll know that that quote comes from Psalms, from Psalm 45. It's a wedding song. It's a beautiful psalm. And within it, in verses 4 to 7, it says these words, In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions and anointed you with the oil of joy. We see it again and again in the New Testament, how the New Testament writers, the the first followers of Jesus, have now clearly seen that the whole of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And that they begin interpreting the Old Testament in the light of Jesus. And it's how we should read the Old Testament. In the light of Jesus. Of who he is. He fulfills the whole Old Testament. He is the bridegroom of that wedding song. The bride are his people, his faithful ones. He is the king of kings 
and Lord of lords. He is the King of heaven and earth. And so as the writer to the Hebrews brings this message, he continually says, keep looking at Jesus. And he calls them to action. It's not just theology in Hebrews. It's application. It's calling the church to respond and to action, as we'll see as we begin chapter 2. Because some were in danger of drifting in their faith. That's all for next week. Come next week. We'll begin chapter 2. But there's so much in chapter 1 that I didn't want us to move on that quickly. I wanted to focus on this verse 9 and talk about what Jesus loves and what Jesus hates. It says he loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Or in another translation, it would be evil, that he hates evil. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 8, John writes, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the evil one. That's why he came, to destroy the work of the evil one. Jesus, the King of kings, loves justice and truth. He loves righteousness, which is the opposite of evil. All rightness, all goodness, all truth, all humility, all justice, he loves. But he hates evil. After all, he is the king of righteousness. He is the only one who has ever kept the law of God in its entirety. The only one to live free from guilt or sin. The only one who has lived a completely righteous life. The one alone who has known no sin. Yet he became sin for you and for me. Offering his life so that we don't have to earn salvation, we don't have to earn God's love or anything like that, because He has paid it in full, made the way for us. He is truth. We live in a world, we know we do, where people are tempted to believe that their ways are right in their own eyes. Many would find it impossible to accept that there is actually an absolute standard of righteousness. That there is actually the truth. Not just one of many truths. Not just what is true for you is okay, but what is true for me is my truth. Jesus is the truth. He said it. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, knowing the truth would set you free. Knowing Jesus. And righteousness, even by human standards, if you look in a dictionary, it's defined as a quality of being morally true or just. But there is a deeper meaning throughout the Scriptures that righteousness has a spiritual depth. It's the quality of being right 
with God, right in God's eyes. And it includes character, nature, our nature. It includes conscience, our attitude. It includes conduct, our actions. And righteousness through the scriptures is based on God's standard, not ours. Righteousness is a God-centered attribute, and no human being can attain it through their own efforts. We've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, as Paul says. We are inclined to follow our own paths and follow our own ways. And the writer here says of Jesus, he loves righteousness. He loved righteousness. And the word that he uses for love there is the same word he, that is used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Jesus so loved the world in the way that he loves righteousness. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus was hungry and thirsty for righteousness. When you see injustice, when you hear of injustice in our world, doesn't your, your spirit rise up and say, this is wrong? And he wants us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It means more than just nodding now, the virtues in the character of Jesus saying, yeah, it's good. But wanting to be more like him. It's, it's simple, isn't it? Christian discipleship, want to be more like Jesus. We make it so complicated. Do you want to be more like Jesus? You will love righteousness and you will hate evil. We do see so much evil in our world, so much injustice, so much suffering caused by evil. And Jesus has come and he's begun a new creation. And he's calling everyone to come and be part of his new creation. And one day it will come in all its fullness and there will be no more suffering or pain or death or injustice. He will put all things right. Suffering does not have the last word. Jesus does. Evil does not win. It will be dealt with. But righteousness can seem such a big word. What does it mean for us every day? Well, a colleague of mine comes up with this simple, he calls it the 1 Corinthians 13 challenge. Have you ever taken the 1 Corinthians 13 challenge? We're going to take it today together. It's just one Bible passage in the New Testament, you can look at righteousness in so many different ways. Let's just look through the lens of this one few verses that Paul writes to the Corinthians. That wonderful description of love, perfect love. And begin to apply it to ourselves. I'll do it for myself. And bear in mind that it may have changed over the years from when you started following Jesus. 
Am I patient? Am I kind? Do I envy? Do I boast? Am I proud? How are you doing? Okay, good. I do not dishonor others. I am not self-seeking. I am not easily angered. Still okay? I keep no record of wrongs. I do not delight in evil but rejoice in the truth. I always protect, I always trust, I always hope, I always persevere. This is the clincher. I never fail. So close! <laughs> I dropped out very early, but some of you were, you, you were there nearly. Don't worry, there's good news coming. Do you know that Jesus is the only word, name, that you can do that challenge with and it rings completely true? Completely true. He loves righteousness. He is righteousness. But also we're told here he hates wickedness or hates evil. And that is truth. From when sin entered the world, and all the evil that has come from that, and all the suffering and the pain, he hates it all. And notice he doesn't hate evildoers. It's a tough one, isn't it? He hates evil. And he loves everyone that he has made. And he calls them to himself. But we know that some refuse. And they go their own way. And some even turn to being anti-God, anti-Christ, and wreak havoc in this world. He hates evil. And we are called to hate evil too. But not just in the world, and not just in others, but in us too. And in this passage, we're told that he is exalted. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty. And again, he is exalted. From Paul's letter to the Philippians, it's very similar. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing 
Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death on the cross where he deals with evil. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's why the writer says you need to look up. Keep Jesus as the focus. He is the name above every name. He is the one, the anointed one. He was Christed. Christ means anointed one. It means Messiah, Savior of the world. So how are we to love righteousness like Jesus? We are to love righteousness like Jesus by being filled with the Holy Spirit and go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is how we are changed, how we are transformed. You will never do it on your own. That's called religion. It's useless. Grace changes people. Bullies don't change people. Have you ever experienced that? Bullies don't change people. They might coerce people to doing things, but they don't change the heart. Love does. When we believe in Jesus, when we have faith in Jesus, the only one who can save, the works of evil in our lives have been dealt with. The enemy, the devil, Satan, whatever you call him, has no hold on us, has no power over us. We are saved and we are being transformed. And the Holy Spirit is at work within us. Yeah, we're not there yet. Remember the 1 Corinthians 13 challenge? We're not quite there yet, but the Holy Spirit is at work within us. And we are not condemned because we are under grace. In fact, more than that, Jesus became sin that we might become his righteousness. That in Christ Jesus, when he looks at us, he sees righteousness because we belong to him. We are in Christ. He has become righteousness for us. He became sin for us, and he gives to us his righteousness. So go on being filled, changed, transformed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Notice here that the writer picks up joy as a hallmark of that anointing of being filled. There are many gifts of the Spirit, but joy is a key thing. How do the group in Aleppo gather to worship songs in the midst of all that is happening? All the suffering, all the pain, they gather to worship Jesus because he is worth it. They don't want to take their eyes off him. 
Because when you start taking your eyes off him and you look at what's happening and all the things that are going on, you lose perspective and you begin to drift in your faith. Come back next week, chapter 2. Jesus was a man familiar with sorrows and suffering but anointed with the oil of joy. Let's ask the Holy Spirit again to make us more like Jesus. Help us to love righteousness and hate wickedness or evil. that we might be more like him. And remember the gospel is about Jesus, not about us. The price has been paid. From 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, and I'll close with this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a great salvation. He is worthy to be praised. We will sing his praises forevermore. Amen? Amen. And I'll Sally and the band to come back.